0: I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Reminding you not to fall asleep while you listen to the show. It'll give you really weird dreams. (laughs) Like, really weird dreams. (laughs) Like like dreams you're running around Portland putting kickstands on things (laughs) and there's cats everywhere. (laughs) The kickstands
1: on the house. I like that idea. In fact, I think we're going to have to do that. I was going through my garage, oh, yeah. recently, and I found a bunch of kickstands. <laughs> and I was like, "God damn it!" In my head, I'm like, "Oh my god." We should get them like mounted on like little little wood I, things. And I, give thought them those I thought about awards. I thought about it. That's exactly what I thought about. But
0: like, here you go, Aprilia. Congratulations <laughs> on getting your shit together. Yeah, <laughs> you get one kickstand.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it'd be funny to put it on the, on the front door or something. Right. Kickstand. Somehow just like put instead, it next instead to the like house. a doorknob? Yeah. All I don't right. know. But I was thinking as like a, a kicker, if you will, or uh you know, a doorstop. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have it hang down. And that's a really good idea. Yeah. Sure. It would be doorstop, yeah. but you wouldn't want to use the Ducati one. Cause then you'd have to replace the pin.
0: Yeah, re- you'd get recalled every three months.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: all right. Oh, motorcycle jokes. They're so silly uh want to remind our readers to follow us on facebook the only social media platform that quentin regularly updates Hmm. <laughs> uh I, I, I got this new idea like instead of trying to plug them all every show i'm gonna f- pick one each show and be like this show please 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 pretty please follow us on facebook and the next show you know instagram okay. twitter all that. yeah
1: right right so, I guess I need to get the Instagram on my
0: account or something. You think that would help? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, but yeah, no, you should definitely follow us on Facebook. Quentin posts up, I would say more than daily, uh, interesting videos, pictures, anecdotes, uh, really cool stuff. A lot of vintage stuff that I've never seen before. So, yeah, it's always good. you good spreading the love. You're definitely missing out in your world if you're not following it on Facebook. I think we got like 800 followers. You need to we got a lot more listeners than 800 Quentin, so we got some slackers out there. No doubt. Uh, just even today,
1: somebody commented or liked an older post. Yeah, oh yeah, I saw that. And it I was January, like, uh, and I had not answered a question that somebody had asked because I'd missed it, right? It was like, it was about liveries. I really liked. The Marlboro Wayne Rainey oh, yeah. Yamaha yeah. livery. It was a very clean thing. And the person had asked, well, what are your other favorites? And I just, I was like, oh shit, that's easy. And then took two minutes to freaking find all my favorite race bike designs. Mainly, mainly it was the, the look of the livery, not the actual design, but it, they kind of go hand in hand. So that was neat. And that type of stuff is cool to um, have kind of a feedback and to chat with people. I like it.
0: Yeah. Maybe if we ever get a website, that'd be good. That no, would be good, sure. I think that one's on my plan. That's where the show notes would go. That'd be a good place for show notes. So we should we should preface. I got on your case the other day about about show notes and you're actually doing it this time. Yeah, I think so. So well it might I'm like right now It might fuck up our G a little bit as an asshole. Yeah. Yeah five minutes in, fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> All the fucks. <laughs> um so we're gonna try and and get on that. I think the plan was to um post things into facebook again plug and yeah, sure. plug in why you should follow it but like because we we talk about things like we'll be like i think the michael lock is a great example like talking about the what was it the nr 1000 no vr 1000
1: yeah vfr 1000 maybe well, i'm gonna have to re-listen to it to remember exactly what he meant because it was a special one-off thing yeah yep. and, For sure. and
0: and people like you know i'd never You know, I don't barely remember that bike. So having that into the Facebook sphere makes it kind of easy, and then that's kind of like our Diet Coke version of of proper show notes. But at least um, it'll put some perspective and uh understanding on the show when you listen to it it was
1: a cbr 1000 it was like the most basic of thing it was we talked about the the vf 1000r which was the one you had the picture of right that That, was the one he liked that's the one he bought but we were were talking about the weird thing was the the bike that's like this huge shamu sized bike that he raced at isle of man i think it was his lot raced at isle of man that was the interesting one i wanted to look up that and
0: i never got a chance so we'll do that sounds good good stuff good stuff write that down i am write that down uh, so Quentin, I'm a, I'm a lucky guy because I got a new bike in the garage. Yeah, and, and it's a my bike. It's not a not a their bike. I got a uh, Ducati pimped my ride and gave me a uh nine three nine hypermotard SP. Yep, it's pretty sweet. It's kind of like the eight twenty one, but different, but not really. It's not that different. It prompted me to um, ask you about. I would say the, the third pillar in the holy trinity of motorcycle topics you shouldn't talk about, which is breaking in a new oh, motorcycle. God. Yeah. Right. Right. So we're, let's just sidestep tires and oil and get right into zero mile bike. What is the preferred nomenclature, Donnie? On, You're out of your element. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, what, what's, what as a Ducati? Regional service manager. What is the official party line on how a bike should be broken in? And then as a former man of the industry and racing. Former been,
1: and current. And current.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Current. Get it? Alta. Oh. Current. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. That was bad. That's that be was that so kinda, good. It's
0: going to be that kind of show. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. yeah all get right. Well, this, 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 of course could go for a lo- really long way. And it's a bad deal for a lot of people. For me, it's very, it's fairly simple. Um, so from the Ducati standpoint, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know whatever it says in the manual. It says in the manual, like you're supposed to go to no more than 25% throttle for a thousand miles or something ridiculous and stupid and something that I would never follow and never recommend. And as a Ducati rep, I had to just kind of gr- grin and nod and you know what I mean? It depended on the person. If I felt like I could get, get away with telling the truth, I would tell the truth. Uh, Or when I was not to say the truth, but I would tell them my opinion instead of what the truth. The truth is the lawyers and or the company want a very specific set. They'd rather you ease the bike in because it's going to limit the amount of potential damage for sure then break it in properly, but there's a balance with that. And we say break-in, it's a really horrible term because it sounds like you're about to break it. Um, so I always would say it's run-in, whatever the run-in is. But I'll give you a m- empirical knowledge from what I've experienced over the past 20 years of watching bikes get run-in and seeing what happens to them over the course of time. And that's w- w- why I've developed the, the opinions I've had, whether it be Honda or Ducati those are, those personally are the ones that I spend the most time with is the, the various Hondas and Ducatis, but I've seen it and watched it for years with friends' bikes and your bikes and, you know, whatever it might be, I, I see a lot. So the the biggest thing I learned was when I was at Pro Italia in 99 through 02, we were the press bike people for uh, Ducati, Moto Guzzi, and Aprilia. So it ran the gamut from a Rotax, Aprilia, V-twin, uh Double overhead cam water-cooled engine to all the air-cooled Ducatis of the time to all the water-cooled Ducatis like a 996 um, and the ST series, etc. So I got to see a wide breadth of different styles of engine. And keep in mind that that's part and parcel of what we're talking about. Is You can't just say a blanket statement that one break-in is good for one bike is going to be the same for another. So that's something I got to say. you've got to be clear on that. A Moto Guzzi might break in differently than a Ducati because it's a freaking mud pump of an engine and
0: it doesn't rev that high. Well, choose your words carefully because that is a slander against mud pumps around the world. <laughs> <All> <laughs> They're right? just trying to pump how, some mud. How dare you? They sir? don't need to. How uh,
1: dare you? <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to be called goozy. Damn you. So, I mean, and what and with by saying that, I'll also say in the same, Brett that I love goozies and I think they're rad. And but it was at that time I had to learn to love a, a bike that made a huge clunk when it shifted from one gear to another, and those gears had to run in a lot more than on say a Japanese four cylinder. They right? make
0: excellent two wheel tractors.
1: <laughs> right. So, um overall though, on any any given bike, what I tell people is ride it like you're gonna ride it within reason in the beginning, straight from word go, right? So The key that you can't, that you can't break, the the key part that you shouldn't, um, do is sustained high RPM or sustained high load. So even if it's 6,000 RPM on a 12,000 RPM limited bike and you're heading up a hill, you don't want to just, just stick it in that and just rev the, just keep, keep, keep it that rev and then, but load the crap out of it in a, in a, in a high gear. You're going to want to row through the gearbox to get to continually try and go through it and try not to stay sustained for a while. So the worst thing you can do is get it out on the highway, click it in the sixth and just go. You're not breaking in anything. It'll be a problem. You're breaking in more than just the engine. And in the engine, you're breaking in a lot of different components, whether it be roller bearings, plane bearings, and you're not supposed to be breaking in the plane bearings. That's half the battle is that you're trying to, to, to keep Uh, certain components from even touching each other from a metal-to-metal standpoint. So a plane bearing has an oil film. And and the way you keep those good is to to have a a bit of, make sure that you never take off immediately, but that you don't necessarily let it sit there and idle for a long time as well. So there's so many things going on here. It's more than just what you do on a day-to-day basis or what you do when you're at the beginning of the bike's life. It's what you're doing throughout the life. So the first thing I do with any bike is just go and ride it Um, for the past few years, the few past few Ducatis that I've had new as a regional rep for Ducati, part of me, I I would buy these bikes. They were my bikes. They weren't Ducati's bikes. I would ride up, um, the local Canyon road, uh, probably about a hundred miles. I would go up and down that Canyon. It would allow me to go through the rev range all the way, all the time, constantly rolling through the gearbox, running in the gears, running in the clutch, breaking in the suspension as well. You're, 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 you're doing all of it and the brakes. So, you know, I'd ease the brakes on here and there and it ease off. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing anything extreme at any point, but I would be riding it at the speed that I normally would. And I would not give a crap about the rev range. I would, I would take it up to red line to a point, but only for really short bursts, never sustained. So if it's a 12,000 RPM bike, you might get it up there once, maybe in. Uh, second or third gear, but be mindful that if you're doing that in fourth gear, you're probably breaking lots of laws and you're putting it under a heavy amount of load. So the the higher the gear, the more load, the more mindful you have to be. So I'll do that 100 mile ride up and down a canyon. It it go for me. It goes up in elevation quite a bit, puts a different load on the bike up and down. Um and it helps me break in the brakes and suspension all at once and the transmission. So that's those are the things when I feel pretty good about. All the main bearings, which are uh on a Ducati, they were roller bearing, all the needle bearings inside, which are a couple that are the uh, transmissions, they're all having a it's it's not like you're breaking in a lot on these bikes. These these components are all very well made, and there might be a sharp edge here and there that you're that you're taking off of something like that, but generally you're probably not even doing that. Um the pistons. The rings and the cylinders is like the major deal. That's kind of like the, the crux of, of of the break-in for most bikes um, is trying to get a good seal, especially with these new engines with um, the this really good oil that we have. So that's a that's a deal. The oil has to be really
0: good to make the rest of the bike flow uh, well. Now, are you talking about like the oil that comes in the bike when you buy it, or just oil in general, like synthetic oil? Is that a many many years ago?
1: This again, this is different. What people think from years like say the seventies or eighties, maybe even in the nineties, bikes would get shipped with break-in oil. And if it would said that, hey, this is the breaking oil, then you have to either, you know, dump that immediately or sometimes they would get filled with like cosmoline or some sort of weird methyl ethyl death chemical that would, uh, keep them from being, um, uh, from any kind of, uh, oxidization or corrosion or whatever. And you'd have to dump it. They call it fish oil. I can't remember what the bikes were that I had to, used to have to dump this stuff out in, but it was at Burt's Motorcycle Mall and was in the late, sorry, mid nineties. It was some Yamaha. And you had to dump the oil. It was part you. You had to do it. You couldn't run the bike with the stuff in it, right? It, oh, it was, it was it, for shipping only. Yeah, it was for shipping only. And I can't remember the exact situation, but it, it smelled horrible, and you had to take it out and fill with whatever the oil is what we had at the time. Right? Why, why
0: would it ship with something that you're never going to? That's run a good through
1: question. It? it was a really strange thing, and I don't quite understand what was going on at the time. I'm, you know, I was just being doing what I was told. Sure. Right. So it'd be it'd be interesting to do a go back and, and maybe talk to a few mechanics that were uh, alive at that time because I was just a young Skippy. Maybe I was just being told a bunch of BS, but there was one specific bike, and I can't remember w- which one it was that we had to do that with. And it wasn't like some Kimco or something like that. It was a Yamaha or a Honda or a Suzuki. That I'm pretty sure it was a Yamaha. Was it like, like an R1? Like something no, it, was like it, was, special it was a dirt bike or of just, some sort. Okay. Uh, and, or, or maybe it was a four-wheeler. So uh, okay. I can't. And again, I'm, I'm sorry if I can't remember, but that's, this is the thing is it's evolved. Now, in the Ducati realm, the bikes are shipped with whatever high-grade, bitchin', fully synthetic oil that they get shipped with. That's what's put in the factory, because there's an expectation that the bike needs to run like that. The clearances that are set, whether it be piston the cylinder, or uh, ring end gap, or um, valve, to, to, um, valve to, to rocker arm, or a- every clearance is set in there, nowadays is so good that they can say all you have to do is change the oil at the first service and then we'll see you at 18,000 miles for a valve adjustment, and that's it, right? That's that's the way the Japanese have been for a really long time as well. Most of this stuff is so well sorted. It's not just how well it's put together. It's how well it's engineered. It's the metallurgy. It's 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 gotten so good over the years that they can, I mean, even look at cars. Shoot, nine 15,000-mile oil, uh, oil change intervals. I mean, it sounds far-fetched to those of us who grew up with bikes, say like an air-cooled Honda 125 engine, it would cook its oil. Anything like that would cook its oil. An, air, an air-cooled Ducati engine, yeah, they're saying that they can go for a long time with the oil, but I change it pretty often because it's doing it's doing more than just lubricating the engine. It's actually cooling it. So there's there's a lot going on there. And in a motorcycle engine, it's going through the transmission most of the time. The transmission has, uh, shears the oil, crushes it. Whereas the oil that's going through a main bearing, it's there as a cushion. It's not there to get crushed by the main bearing. It's just there to, to provide a bit of a cushion. And if oil pressure is good, it's good. So when you say, I like to start my bike up and let it sit and idle for 20 minutes, that's actually okay for the engine part, but it's horrible for the combustion chamber part, for the valve part, for the exhaust valves, for the intake valve. It's just, that's not a good thing. It creates carbon. It's just going to load up, especially with the shitty fuel that we have now. So you basically want to get it started and get it going. And depending on the bike, you want it to get oil pressure to the top end or oil pressure to the furthest point from the oil pump. And we know in the Ducati realm, okay, that's about 50 seconds. So it's really good, right? So you got your 50 seconds, you know the thing's ready to go. Then you just roll away. You don't put it under huge load. You're not popping dank wheelies as you're leaving. You're just getting going and then letting the engine warm up under load, which is a better way to do it. It happens quicker. It's more efficient. So that's, that's something I tell everybody. Generally, that's the way I would do it. Right. So whether it be on my ST2 that it has 140,000 miles on it and it has 130, 140,000 miles on it because it was taken care of properly or with any one of the other machines that I've, I've, um, started from scratch, uh, uh, whether it be my Street Fighter or Multistrada or whatever. So that's that's how I would do it, you would uh you'd try and keep the the idle to a minimum. You get it going on uh and get it warm under load to a point but not with an extreme amount of uh w- a load, right? Uh and the same goes for when you're starting as a um from zero to get mileage on. So I would do that ride. Um go back to my my process. I do the ride, I bring it back, I do a quick once over of the bike and then I take it to the track day. So I've done that multiple times multiple bikes and there are always extremely good running bikes um the street fighter in particular was my the the first time I was able to do that from a, from a brand new bike in a long time i did the track and i had put 4000 miles on that bike and i checked the valves before i sold it even though the valve adjustment didn't need to be done it was just like hey i own I, I was I, it was just part of what i did i worked for ducati it felt like it would it was smart check the valves not one was out I was pretty happy with that, and that was that. So that said to me, number one, that Ducati got its shit together with its valve adjustments, whether it be metallurgy with the valves or the shims or the half rings or all that stuff, because it was track duty mostly with that bike. That's high RPM. I beat the crap out of that bike. Um, it had great compression and leak down. It was good to go. And so that's what I look for in a, in a motor that's been run in well is that a few thousand miles in, it's got good compression and leak down. That means the combustion chamber is sealed well. That means there's no blow by in the, in the, um, uh, uh, for the piston and rings and there's, uh, the, the valves are seating, and, and they're, uh, creating a good seal. So I think that's the smart way to go, uh, is to run it pretty hard right off the bat. That's the way I would err on it. And when I do it to it, take it to a track, I do one session at, Probably six to eight thousand RPM. Another session from eight to ten thousand RPM, and then the last session before I just go hog wild, I would take it to full RPM to to whatever the max is or wherever the power drops off. And say on a on a big twin like that, you don't really necessarily need to rev the crap out of it. But I would do a similar thing with a six hundred. I would I would stage the RPMs for each session because your heat cycling it is. That, that's just as important. So the first ride that I'm talking about gives it a heat cycle. And I would probably try and do a couple more heat cycles before I took it to the track. Uh, I think heat cycles are pretty important just from, you know, just a full expansion and contraction of all the stuff. So if it's really cold out, that's going to be different than if it's really warm out. But that's something that I think is a pretty good deal. And that would be something that I got from racing 125s. And that was part of uh, the process to break in a piston and ring on a 125, and this was in the Honda manual, was that you had to do, um, say three heat cycles before you actually went on track with it. You'd put the new piston and ring in, um, and then you'd run it up to, you know, whatever full operating temperature is, and then let it get back down to the zero, and then do that three times. And then you had yourself a, a pre-run-in piston. One thing we've seen over the course of time is people that don't ride their bike hard enough. Uh, they will do something called glaze the cylinder um, which basically gives it a sheen that's that the ring doesn't seal against at all so the piston and ring it's hard to explain how that interaction works if you don't know what and how that works in an engine but the pistons riding around in a cylinder and it goes up and down um, taking that. Um, That's reciprocated motion that's getting transferred to to rotational motion by the the con rod and and then the crankshaft. Well, that cylinder, that piston has to be sealed in order to um, allow as much of the rapidly oxidizing combustion gases power the piston down to create thrust. So the seal is critical, and there are multiple rings depending on the engine. You know, a a race bike, like a two-stroke race bike, only has one ring. And because it's only going to live a certain amount of time anyway, so it gets changed. So who cares? So there's no drag. It's just that one ring. That's all you need. You don't need an oil scraper. Uh, part of the part of the fuel is oil, and that's how part of the ways they operate to get lubrication to the crankshaft. Uh, most engines have a top ring, a mid ring, and an oil scraper ring. And the mid ring kind of just does a little extra duty to sc- scrape the oil away. And in a race bike scenario, there's usually two-ring pistons with uh, a compression ring at the top and then the oil scraper system at the bottom that's as light as it has to be to, for the lack of friction. So um, friction reduction is critical. And then a the good example, this would be the Panigale R and Superleggera. They have two-ring pistons. And it was it's it's well known that you can't you have to run those bikes in really well, and if you don't, they will burn oil, and um, they burn oil because they're the 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 rings haven't set in properly, and that would happen on various models. It wouldn't just be a two two ring piston thing. There, we'd often get new riders on hyper motards or six nine sixes or seven nine sixes, and they just wouldn't load the bike up enough at all and then the cylinders would glaze or the ring would glaze it's the interaction between the two basically just not be conducive to to scraping the oil away or providing enough uh, uh, compression and it would just start burning oil heavily or um, or um, just and it could even cause heat issues they start running really poorly it's a it's a bad deal so that's why I err on the side of Hard break-ins because you know that you're going to get that thing to to seat in uh, the 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 rings to seat in better for sure. That's my opinion, and I know a lot of people have different ways of doing it. Shoot, I used to hear of a a, you know like a pro stock V8 engine builder that would get the thing on the dyno revved up at 8,000 RPM, which is high on a on an American V8, and then bore. Uh, a, a, a cup of water down the intake, right? And that was their idea of, of steam clean slash breaking in, a, right? It's crazy. So I would never do anything like that but that's that's the type of the thought process that people were trying to do. And it might depend on the rings and the pistons and the cylinders and what was it, cast iron, right? Or what are we dealing with? With most motorcycle engines, we're dealing with Nicosil plating, which is extremely hard on aluminum and then a, a piston that's aluminum and a ring that's who knows what i can't even try and guess how the rings are formed they are usually a, some sort of a steel with a really gnarly coating on them sometimes it could be tie nitrided it's some sort of nitriding process in general anyway it's super hard so they do want those two things to be super hard but they their faces have to eventually wear into each other to a point and the rings spin on a on a four stroke generally so the ring you put the ring end gap in one spot and it'll move around over the course of time that's just the way it works Uh, on a two stroke, they get pinned and that's because there's holes in the cylinders of a two stroke and that's a whole nother story. Uh, but that, that's part of the the process that you're breaking in. And it's kind of, I think it's kind of crucial for the, the listenership to understand that, that that's the main thing. All the bearings and stuff are part of it. The transmission's part of it, the clutch. Right, all these things are part of what are bedding into each other as they are interacting with each other, uh, but you're not breaking in like cam journal bearings because that would suck. You don't want your cam riding on the uh, the metal of the of the journal. You want an oil film to be there, which is why you start it up and let oil pressure get to it before you put it under load. But then once you're under load, you go and you get that thing revving so that the the, the piston and uh, uh, the rings and the and the cylinder bed together. And for me, that's the, the pretty critical uh, part of, of why I do hard break ins. So I can't say that works for every bike. And I, uh, but that's how I would do it. If I bought a, a Kawasaki Ninja 300, that's how I'd do it. I'd ride it up to Ripple Brook and back. And then I'd do a couple heat cycles. Then I'd take it to the track and I'd ease in on the RPM. If I bought a, a Honda, um, uh, Africa twin, I would find a way to replicate it. I wouldn't necessarily take that on the track. That's a bit stupid to think that you would want to go to a track day with something like that. Um, that's not reasonable, but I would go for a couple of really mild rides and then I'd take it out and just ride the crap out of it in the canyons before I, or, or if you're really hardcore off-road, you just go ride it off-road. That's a great, Way to break in a bike because it's not a lot of high sustained RPM stuff unless you're SoCal desert riding or something like that. But that's how I would do that for a bike like that. If it was a KLR 650, probably a similar thing. If it was an XR 650, um, you know, I own one of those. It's an air-cooled engine. You might have to be a little bit more um, easy on it, but not not generally, right? Another part of this, another interesting thing, is like it goes into the same line as the uh, the pouring water down the intake during an engine pull would be what oil you do use when you're breaking in a motor. Well, most people just use what's in the bikes. You run the bike until first service. First service is usually six thousand six hundred miles, 1,000 kilometers. And then you dump the oil and you put in whatever it's supposed to live with the rest of its life. On the Ducati world, it was, it was pretty easy. If it had a wet clutch, you would use uh, a certain weight of oil. And if it had a dry clutch, you could use another weight of oil, right? And it was pretty critical or else the, the clutch would slip. So you have to deal with the weights and the styles. Um, my ST2 lived its whole life on Motul 5100. It's a semi-synthetic and it worked from pretty much from day one. I believe I bought it with 90,000 miles and the guy that had it before me, I'm pretty sure that's what he used. And he, that was one major reason why I have this opinion because I asked him how he rode, this bike, because it had gotten to 90,000 miles and it needed some pistons at 70, but that's not surprising with a, with a uh, engine like that. And when he had told me that he had just pretty much ridden it uh, immediately from, uh, as he normally would from Go, that gave me an idea of, okay, well, if a Ducati engine can last this long with that type of behavior and now it has 140,000 miles on it, then okay, that's a good way to do it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it also proved that to me, I mean, there's, it depends on, it's horses for courses, whether you use full synthetic or semi-synthetic and all that. And that's, that's what the, part of the unholy trilogy of, right. Because you can only.
0: You're getting a second pillar shit right Right. And
1: I don't want to do that because you can only do that when you're running Dunlop tires, right. Because you can, if you're using Pirellis, you have to use semi-synthetic for sure. Well, and you have to use Italian oil. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh that's right Audit yeah. is the only way the only one. Pirelli, yeah. so all joking aside this is why this is a, this is one of these topics that just always blows up pretty i i don't and i don't think you can be emphatic about any one way. All I know is the only way I will be emphatic about it is is you can't ease any bike in nowadays, especially if it's a, a water cooled motor that requires um uh, fully synthetic oil. You just don't want to be easy on them in the beginning. Too easy is is a bad thing. But you couldn't be faulted for following the manufacturer's recommended break-in procedure to a would T. I I wouldn't I wouldn't sit to say you're stupid for it. But holy crap, would I get that thing out and rev the crap out of it as soon as you're done with it? Ride it like a raped ape. That way you can really get it broke in properly.
0: If I had to, if I had to take a takeaway on this, it's that when you buy a new bike, you should take it to the track. You should enjoy a track day on it.
1: Yeah, almost. If you can. Within reason, but I wouldn't immediately take it there because no, you no, could no. do some major damage. You could, you could. I doubt it, but you could. Uh, say at Graves Motorsports, what would we do to break in engines? They had a, a dyno break in procedure. At Moto Sizz, we had a dyno break in procedure, but it was pretty quick. It was a half an hour of runtime, um, on any given engine.
0: And well, that's what, what did that procedure look like
1: though? Uh, it would be, you know, easing in, uh, Easing up to RPM with it just rotating the drum, and then pr- uh, stepped amounts of load with a load cell. So uh, the the uh, yeah, most people know dynos is a big drum. It's a about nine hundred thousand pound drum. It's a dynojet drum, and you spin it up, and you're rating horsepower off of how fast you're spinning that drum up. Well, a better dyno, which is like say a dynojet two fifty i or a superflow or a mustang, have a load cell, whether it be a water break uh, that's forcing water through. Um, Channels. Through a through a vein that that's causing friction, basically, um, or an electromagnet that you turn on and it loads the motor down. Right, it's like reverse.
0: It's the same concept of what uh, cyclists use called trainers. And there's electromagnet electromagnetic ones, and there's there's water ones. And yeah. It's just, okay. Sure. It, it's just you're creating some sort of friction, yep. some sort of load against the the axis. Yep. Of rotation. And in
1: this case, that would be what I what we would do is that we'd you'd rev it up a couple times, get it to a temperature, get into whatever gear, and most of the time it'd be like fourth gear on a dyno. It's a it's a good uh, it doesn't spin the drum too fast, but it, it provides enough load. So the uh, not not just not just top speed, but also acceleration. So um, you'd you would load it up at different different p- spots in the RPM range, and then you know let it give it a couple heat cycles, do that a couple times. Right, uh, so getting it up to full RPM after a while. It'd be interesting to see uh, what our what our break-ins at Graves were. I just remember it being pretty quick, and then you know, as soon as you bolted those engines in, they were they were a, a bullet ready for chamber, and that was ready to go. And those those engines would get, I think, 2,500 miles, not kilometers, but miles, was, was what we would get out of them. We would literally run the engine with the same oil, From the point it started to the end, I don't think we ever changed oil, and this is on an R1 uh, super stock bike.
0: Well, so that brings me to to kind of like two little urban legend things I wanted to quickly get through. Like one of the things I hear is people saying like, okay, so you know, start the bike up, do twenty miles on it, then drain that oil because you don't want whatever particulates or shavings or whatever they think is in there. All filters do a
1: remarkable job, you know, and I, I think to say that you would need to worry about that particulates or a lot of it is assembly lube, and yeah, maybe fifty years ago the assembly lube they used with a lot of molly content, and this happens sometimes in newer bikes as well um it's particulate, but i mean it's it's molly it's it's it looks like it's um stuff in the oil when in, in fact it's lubricant and it's really high level lubricant it's doing its job, it's fine,
0: so you're saying the bike's rolling on molly
1: oh yeah, absolutely we're all on molly um but that for me it would be like. If there was a, I don't know, there, you, every once in a while you'll see like goo from case mating, like a some sort of a 3M case mating goo. Yeah, it, it, you should see Jensen's face. It popped up. He was like super happy when I'm he, like, We are never getting advertisers. Ugh. Case mating goo. <laughs> um, you know, Bond, whatever, you know, a lot of people yeah. call it Bond because that was like the first major one that was out there. But basically, it's a silicone sealant of some sort, right? And every once in a while, there would be bits and pieces in the in a drain on a drain plug, and it it depends on how you look at where the oil is going from when it gets picked up. There's multiple screens in pretty much every engine. There's like a pre-screen, and then sometimes there's a secondary screen before it even gets to the filter. Then filtered oil so it's goes like
0: extreme vetting.
1: It it is yeah. it is sure absolutely it is All right. So it gets from the filter from the oil generally in a well-engineered engine. Uh, filtered oil gets to the important spots first, whether it be the crankshaft or the camshafts, and then it goes to everything else afterwards. Transmission being last. So, somebody concerned about like immediate particulates, I, I think that's overkill by a long shot. Like I, I can't even imagine that. Now, if the same person was talking about, say, a bevel drive Ducati in 1971, oh yeah, oh yeah, fuck yeah, absolutely. I would, I would be like, yeah, pour the oil in, ride it 20 feet. Then drain the oil. <laughs> Maybe not. So it's hyperbole. But, Around
0: the block right? to the dealership but with them. But we're
1: talking about an engine that didn't have a proper filter system. It was really bad. And I'm sure some of those older British engines are similar. Um, shoot, some of those motors were designed to have like total loss oiling before some sort of screwed up gear drive oil pump was bolted to them. And I, I this is ancient shit. But that, that, that's where a lot of this stuff comes in. It's, it's, it's kind of like tribal knowledge going through. So whatever somebody's buddy's dad used to have to do on their 1950s -hmm. ford is what they expect to have to do on a 1990s honda v4 it's like give me a break
0: well i think that's where that's where i think a lot of these kind of like weird little i mean get on any forum you're gonna find this thread talking about this and you'll see all these different opinions and people being adamant about their their opinion and i'm not gonna say they're wrong but i think it is a part of, well, this is what we did 30 years ago, yeah, so sure. I'm, that's what I'm used to and that's what I'm going to keep doing. But And that's why I say
1: I warn that certain bikes might be different. So if you did go buy an XR650 air-cooled, I would probably follow Honda's recommendation pretty well because they do stuff right. But when I put a new piston in my CRF250X, which is a, a high RPM, uh, single cylinder, over, it's a square bore style engine that revs a lot. I put Penn's oil in it, and it only has like a liter of oil in the bottom, and I put in the shittiest oil I can, I could, and I I rode it for one ride, and then I dripped that out, and I poured in fully synthetic. I, I like the idea of breaking in that piston and ring with crappy oil. And I, and I, I don't think it mattered. I, I honestly, in my I heart say of hearts, I don't think it mattered, but it was a psychosomatic thing. I don't know if that's the right I, term. It I was wanna, a placebo effect yeah. tuning
0: for me. I, I want to kiss the, the oil, the oil thing here just a little bit, but is it, is, is there such a time of being too soon to go to synthetic, to go to a full synthetic oil?
1: Not, not nowadays. If the manufacturer calls it out like Ducati does, just do it. Like BMW and Ducati. It's already in the engines. They've designed it for that. It's been engineered for it. It's been proven over and over and over, it works fine. So I, I don't think if somebody said, hey, I'm dumping that out and I'm going to put in a semi-synthetic, eh, whatever. As long as it's fresh, uh, you know, just know that that, that non-synthetic is going to break down a lot faster than the synthetic and it's just going to get shittier quicker. So one of the reasons why they a lot of these uh, manufacturers have long uh, oil change intervals is because the oil is frankly really good. All right, so can we uh, can we call that one generally done?
0: Yeah, I want to switch gears um, a little bit here, but continue the Ducati drinking game extravaganza. Cha-ching, cha-ching slurp, slurp. So, you're going to be so drizzunk by the end of the show. I apologize to all of our fans that play the unofficial To Enthusiast podcast drinking game.
1: Yeah. I don't give a I don't I think it's funny. Show us pictures. What does it look like oh, when you guys no, are done?
0: I don't wanna see send those pictures to Quentin. <laughs> don't send those pictures to me. Two enthusiasts <laughs> at com.
1: We should have a two enthusiast drinking game at com. That way we can only we can only open it once we blow <laughs> like a point two into a <laughs>
0: yeah, point two you, you blow a five point eight. Um <laughs> So yeah, I want to talk about the Ducati premier financing. And I called this on Asphalt and Rubber, I called it the subtle big deal that, is, that was released this week. Um, you may or may not have seen just a kind of a copy paste job on the press release with it because it's it's kind of dense material and it's kind of a big deal, but it's dense. So we're going to try and break it down a little bit for you and try and uh, in part why I think this is such an important thing. For Ducati, obviously, but also I think for the industry, I think we're going to see a trend in the U.S. that follows this. And and truth be told, before we get too far into it, Ducati is really just following BMW. BMW started with the – and I don't really know how we pronounce this, but it's the BMW 3Z riding program or 3EZ. Yeah, because it's like – I don't even know. I don't know what the –
1: we should probably look that up as three easy because it was it's not three easy payments. It they're was, trying
0: to say easy, but they're using a three because they're all computer oh. geek like that. And I don't really, it's really awkward to say. It's kind of like the movie
1: seven or the seven is the, 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 v. the V and the, yeah, yeah it's like, mm, I don't know about that. Or dead mal five,
0: right? Yeah. That person dead mal five. I don't think we're hip enough to know how to say it. No, but, but what it is is something that looks like a lease. Smells like a lease, <laughs> but isn't a lease, but it kind of is. It is kind of is. Well, and another
1: point of disclosure is that when I was at Moto Corsa at the Ducati dealership of the past year, we got to roll it out in Oregon, and I were, we're one of the few states, I think... Ducati Bieber
0: stayed in the hizzy! Right, so
1: one of the few places where they, they kind of gave or were able to due to regulations... Uh, I think, uh, roll it out to see what it, what it did and how it worked. And it also helps that Oregon doesn't have sales tax. Yeah, that might be part of the there's, deal. There's a little bit of that. It might be part of the when deal. When you get
0: into the numbers. It might
1: have been, Is it, does Arizona have a sales tax? I have no idea. Whatever. Uh, there was a couple of states. We were one of them. So I got to have 1st uh, firsthand experience of watching this roll in and the sheer amount of confusion it created, not only within the dealership, but actually once you started having
0: to explain it to customers, because it's not, cut and dried. Dude, I have an MBA and I still kind of had to sit down and, and game it out a little bit to see what was really going on. Well, like, then, this is,
1: let's, then uh, let's explain it to people because I have a hard time, even though I know it well, yeah. the only the only reason I don't know it extremely well is because I never got onto it, but I thought about it and it didn't seem like
0: that bad of a deal. And that's why I kind of, but I, but it's one of those where you're like, ah. Well, and that's the thing, right? So so it's like a lease in the sense that there is kind of stuff that happens at the end of the loan term or the term of the loan, namely a balloon payment, which basically is at the end of this pro financing program, you're going to have to pay a bunch of money if you want to keep this bike. And depending on like what bike that is, I mean, we could be talking almost up to $10,000 um, because what Ducati is doing and what BMW has done uh, and, and I should preface before we get too far in, in Europe and especially in the UK, this is already going on. It's called a personal contract purchase. So if it sounds familiar, it's because it is, but it's kind of a new thing in the U S at least kind of in modern post great recession times, um, to, to see something like this. But what's happening is, uh, the payments, the monthly payments that you be making when you finance a bike are artificially lowered. And so your, your monthly payment is very, very low, which of course means at the end of it, you're going to have to make up that difference, which is where kind of people get into trouble with leases and, and, and other loan agreements that have a balloon payment at the end, because you get this such great rate, monthly payment rate. And a lot of people sometimes don't realize that, you know, nothing's free. You're going to have to pay the difference at some point. But the way it works with uh, the Ducati program and the way it works with the BMW program is at the end of the, the loan, which is about five years, you have a couple options. You can buy the bike outright, which is where that balloon payment's going to come in. You can sell the bike to a third party, but there's going to be a lien on the title, so you're going to have to deal with the whole kind of nonsense of like, hey, you got to give me the money and I give you the title and then we get under the bank together and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's a total pain in the ass. Or, and this is what they really want you to do, you can take the bike down to the dealership trade it in against a new bike, uh, the purchase of a new bike and continue on with this kind of like perpetual pain to own a motorcycle or what I like to call motorcycling as a service where you're not really owning anything. You're just kind of paying a monthly installment to ride a motorcycle. And then every couple years you're getting upgraded. Um, and the, the, the reasoning behind this is that it's been really effective, especially for BMW. You were telling me before the show, BMW is selling bikes like hotcakes because of this.
1: Right, because uh, your general duty Skippy uh, who wants a, a could could go to a, a Suzuki dealership for the longest time. There was problems just getting loans in general. Sure. Whether you if you had bad credit or iffy credit, the the people that were loaning to the 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 Japanese dealerships. Weren't that good with that. They were like, "Nope, nope,
0: you got nothing right. on that." This is before before like Suzuki had its own financing program yeah. or Honda had its own financing sure. program. So you're getting financed through either like a local bank or someone like GE Capital,
1: yeah, or or and or they just gonna Bob's take a risk. mortgage
0: loaner, sure.
1: And they weren't in most cases, especially in the post recession or post. I don't know what we call this era. Post
0: 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. So
1: after that, it was really tight. Everybody was really tight. Everybody's really worried about loaning to uh, subprime, let's call it just subprime people. So sub- people that have a oh, credit it's score. Real, real judgy. Yeah, whatever. Uh, it's funny how that is. It's like when you have numbers to, to back it up. I don't know how, where my credit score is. but So I think it would be like
0: below 650. Yeah, below five. I, I don't think, even know what's it, considered. I don't know I don't know anyone that's loaning to someone well, I'm sure there's people lending out to us sub five there's an interest rate for everyone, yeah, sure but but yeah, I would say six fifty below is probably where you're starting at yeah and a, and a prime would be seven fifty and above
1: that would be like you can you could they finance anything ever like you could buy the Empire State Building with ish. that at one percent ish yeah. All right. So that's, that's, that's the thing though is not a lot of people know all this stuff. And it took me being in a dealership and working for a manufacturer for years just to get used to the ins and outs of talking about it, right? The first vehicle I ever, uh, financed was a bike, uh, a, a Toyota truck that I bought in 2009, right? And I'm 39 years old now, but that was the first time I ever financed anything, because I'm not of that culture. My pa- my parents aren't of that. I've been fortunate. I get hand-me-down cars. I've never had to deal with it. Well, that was my first time, and I had to deal with it at that time, and it was fine. And I remember going in and getting the 7%, and that wasn't great, but it was. It got me into a new truck, and I didn't care, and I just did it. When I, you know, at the time, I think it was um, uh, a a rate that would be normal for what I credit rating I had at the time, and I don't know what that was. My guess it was probably in the high sixes. It wasn't that great because I didn't I didn't use the stuff. Like I had credit cards, but I didn't have a house or a car, you know, to to help build me cre- my credit over the time. So that is something that a lot of people that just the machinations of of getting money for a vehicle. Alone probably cause people to go into a tailspin, let alone then going into something like
0: this that sounds a little hinky, right? Well, it's a huge thing. And there and there already is a stigma against leases and loans that have balloon payments. So you have to kind of you know, you have to overcome two barriers. You have to overcome the idea that you're gonna finance a purchase, which, truth be told, most buyers nowadays are financing their purchase. Yep. We are a credit society here in the United States. But you have to get over that hurdle, which is a lot lower now than it used to be, but it's it's still a hurdle. For, for a variety of reasons, whether it's your credit score or your just your view on money or yeah. how you're structuring your life. Maybe you already have too much stuff that you're making monthly payments on and it's yeah. just not an option for sure. you. Um, and then you have to kind of get, like like we said earlier, you're going to have to get through this kind of complicated kind of thing that's going on here that's not, like I said, like I got an MBA and I still got to sit down and think about it. You know, this is not easy stuff. Yep. So, um, the, so
1: the but back to the original thing that you 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 provoked me, which was the Suzuki buyer goes in. Right. Maybe they're not subprime. Maybe they're no, just no, no, no. Maybe they're prime, but you they're can, you can still have like a eight
0: hundred for your credit score.
1: Yep. But it, it, they go in and they have to buy. They're looking at a Jixer one thousand, which is probably a fifteen thousand dollars bike ish. Right. Maybe thirteen to.
0: Uh, at the time, to, oh, like yeah. five years ago. Oh, it was cheaper than that.
1: Right. So it's, it's cheap, but it was still like, all right, well, I could do that. Or you go down to the BMW shop and you're looking at a new S1000RR with a bunch of bells and whistles that, yeah, the base price probably showed at 15 but the real price ended up being closer to 18 or 19 right. And you can get it for less per month. Because most people are, they dictated by that price per month. Like I know I can afford X amount a month, whether it be hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, and they don't want to vary from that very much. And they don't care if it's eighteen thousand dollars or sixteen thousand dollars, as long as that
0: payment per month is met. Right. right? So, so here's some examples to, to kind of gel this in, in concrete numbers. Right. Um, at the low end of the bike, let's let's look like a Ducati Scrambler, nine thousand dollar bike. Let's look at the Yamaha FZ09. Another nine thousand dollar bike. Both bikes, I think, are $899, 99 how, how many nines? Something like that. Lots I of nines. Got, I got too many nines. Too many nines. In There's it. a
1: dot in there somewhere. There's something.
0: Right? A decimal point yep. and a comma. Nine thousand dollar bikes. Through standard financing on that Yamaha, you're going to pay $160 a month.
1: Standard, like you go in, you have a fairly you, good credit you score. Got, you got a bitch credit it's score. It's going to be what, like a, a, a 72 month or are
0: we? 60. I'm, I did our crunch numbers at 60 months. Okay, cool. So, five, so that's even So better. five yeah, year sure. loan. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Talking about 2.9, 3% APR. Yep. Uh, so good, good rate for what the market is right now. Yep. $160 a month. Yep. That Ducati, $99. Now the kicker is at the end of that five years, you own that FCO nine. You've paid that that sucker off. You've probably paid about two thousand dollars in interest, but you you paid that sucker off. That Ducati, you owe another four grand or so. So we'll get to that in a second. At the higher end of things, and I think this is what you were talking about. Honda twenty seventeen Honda CBR one thousand rr R, MSRP sixteen five, two thousand seventeen. Ducati, $1,299 Panigale S, $25,800. Guess, guess how much we're talking here monthly. Um, the Honda is $296 a month. The Ducati is $299. So for $3 <laughs> more a month, yeah. you can have the middle range Ducati, which has got a lot of features, Or you can have the base model Honda, which is like the same freaking Honda that's been out for the past decade. And, you know, I think it's easy to get turned off by the MSRP and the prices of these bikes. Yeah. But so many people are purchasing based on what that monthly payment is, that that's how you're bringing in buyers. So it's like saying like, hey, bud, like for the same price basically to you, you know, in terms of your monthly budgeting, which bike would you rather have? And you know, it's not surprising to see that people are choosing the higher end bike. So we're seeing like in the BMW side of it, I want to say a fully decked out BMW S1000RR was like 270 a month, 265 when I was looking at the numbers. Yeah. You can go on their site and they'll show you pretty quick. And you this could, is with the balloon payment. What we call a balloon payment. Well, right, so it's looking at a balloon payment. What
1: what's BMW's version of what Ducati right. has just released?
0: It, it, the BMW plan and the Ducati plan are very, very similar. You can interchange, I think, most things with them. Read the fine print, obviously, yeah, but true. from the terms of our conversation, yeah, very interchangeable. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, in that in that case, it's like a no-brainer. For so for thirty bucks less a month, I can have a S1000RR, which is a bitchin' inline four bike. It's probably the best inline four super bike on the market right now. I have no problem saying that. Or you could buy the Honda, which is kind of. Meh. For thirty bucks more a month, get the f out of here. I know which bike I'm getting. Sure. Twice on Sunday. All right. So then there's the risk. So then there's a risk, and the, and the biggest thing is is that balloon payment, and that's where you have to kind of like get into the money into the the money side of it. So like I said before, that scrambler, at the end of that five years, you still owe four thousand dollars. So you have three options at that point in time. You can plop down four grand at your dealership, which is almost half the cost of the bike at this point, and you've got a five-year-old machine and you're going to plop down four grand for it. Okay. Or you can sell it to a third party, which is going to be a pain in the ass or, and this is what Ducati wants you to do. You come in and say, Hey, I've got this scrambler. I owe four grand on it. It's five years old, but you know, a five-year-old scrambler is probably going to be worth 4,000 or more. Maybe. Yeah, sure. I mean, we and don't want really know yet, but
1: no, we, that, but that, that looking at the premium style products are from Ducati BMW KTM. Um in some cases triumph, right? There's there's certain levels of it depends on the bike that, that it would be considered a premium product. Right. In the Honda realm, it might be a, um, a even the SP version of the CBR 1000 or, say, the uh, the Goldwing or whatever. You could have certain bikes that are going to hold their value and that they're considered premium products, and those are going to be better off. They're, they take an initial dive. As soon as you take it off the showroom floor, you lose 20% of the value of the vehicle, period, end stop. I saw it all the time dealing with the used bikes, as I did at Yamoto Corsa. It, it's an unfortunate thing, but that's the way it is. As soon as it gets warranty registered and as soon as somebody owns it, that's it. Yeah. What? Why do you have the smug smile on your face? Because I remember to hit the record button. Okay. Boy, am I glad <laughs> I got you did ya. that.
0: I got you. Yeah,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Right, so seeing that premium product, we and we crunched these numbers back in August when we yeah. were first told that at Motocorsa we were going to be able to do this. Because of course, it meant a lot for me on the use side, right? Right. So pre-owned, I'm like, hmm. And we got to
0: get to that. That's this, a huge part of this. This, this. Makes
1: a, a, this is like future potential profit for me because they're going to be coming in. The people are going to have to take care of their machines. They're not going to be able to put a lot of miles on it, depending on how the verbiage is in the in the in the loan, well, right?
0: So for the Ducati program, there is no mileage restriction, but it is one of those things where, like, if the salesmen are being good salesmen, they'll be like, "Hey, man, at some point, you're going to want to trade this bike in. Less miles is better than more miles. Good condition is yeah, better than right. bad condition. You know, you're only going to be hurting your trade-in." And a lot of this program. Is kind of geared towards having you trade in the bike, so emptor right? Yeah, there.
1: right. So the emptor is that, and so what we did was crunched, and we just we literally just did this between you and me here now. Right. But at the time, we did the same thing for Panigales and for Multistradas. Again, both were large expense machines that we thought more people would be going for to get to use the balloon payment. We really weren't really thinking about the scramblers, even though that might end up being the. The big one where somebody can be like, dude, hundred
0: bucks a month, bring it on, right? I think Ducati's little line was it's a cappuccino a day,
1: right? And if it's a cappuccino a day, and then you have your scrambler and your cappuccino a day for two hundred bucks a month, you're stoked, right? Uh, so in the in the Panigale world, 2012 was the first year of the Panigale. They were twenty two, twenty three thousand dollars new. I can't remember exactly yeah, somewhere around in right. there,
0: somewhere in the, the a little the, over. I want to say like twenty one nine, whatever it was, it was in the early early two thousands, right?
1: Twenty thousands, and now. Uh, They're worth in the in the market. There's right now on Cycle Trader. There's 25 of those bikes in 2012, varying mileages and specs and all that stuff. But the average value is 13.8. And from my standpoint, I can look at Cycle Trader as a very good um, indicator of the market, and that's how I would start pricing bikes depending on on mileage and and condition. So 13.8 now. And if that person had been paying from 2012, the five years into this, they would owe about eight grand. Let's just call it about, we're doing, as you said, gorilla math, which is fine. Um, and I, I think for this purpose, it makes sense. So if the bike's worth in the open market 14, as say that, say that's just the general in in the mid range and you owe eight, it's like, Hmm. All right. Well, what does that mean? That sounds really good. That's not a bad deal. No, you're going to net six thousand grand on it if you sell it. That would mean you putting it on Craigslist and being able to sell it to the
0: person with, with the lien and you all know, that. All jazz.
1: that stuff. So yeah. there's some stuff going on that's not that's not necessarily a given. So say you go to trade it in. Well, the dealership is not going to give you fourteen thousand dollars for that bike. Not by a long shot. They're going to look at that. $14,000 potential value and then they're going to nitpick all the stuff that might be wrong with the bike, whether it be mileage or scratching the paint or what about all the other stuff that's wear and tear on the machine. So unless you've kept it pristine, then they're going to be able to knock that down to say that the value of the bike in the open market is going to be thirteen thirteen five, dollars and they're not going to take a risk to buy a bike to sell at thirteen five 5 when they know they might only get 13 in a few months. So then they're going to back off 20%, maybe 25% from there and they might, so you might might only get 10 grand for that bike if you trade it in. So you're like, oh, that's a bummer. But you still, if you owe eight and they take it in, then you're just applying two grand more into your next machine. So instead of yeah, it, it could you 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 and I look at it like oh man, that's potential for five or six grand there. Maybe it's not going to be that if you trade it in. But you're still looking at the chances are you're going to be able to trade that in and put money down on that next machine right. if it holds its value. If you don't have a lot of miles on it, if you've burned twenty grand uh, twenty thousand miles into that bike, it might only be worth seventy five hundred. So then you've taken the hit then you might have to put some money out. But then you got to look at what you did. You owned a premium machine, whether it be the BMW or the Ducati, for five years. You got a few track days out of it, a lot of track days out of it, maybe a lot of good use, maybe a lot of time, a lot of... uh, um, You enjoyed yourself. Whatever it is. And then you have to decide whether it was worth your money to own that bike for $200 a month or whatever, the maybe $250 a month for something that special for five years and then continue on with it. Is is owning a bike that's rad and new with all the latest, greatest creature features worth that to you? And a lot of people say, heck yeah, and then not have to worry about the bullshit that's involved with selling it and just be able to trade it up for the
0: next best thing. That's the thing, because I remember you telling me, what what's the average ownership duration for, for Ducati? 18 months right. for, for a, a Ducati owner, at least on the, on the higher end side yeah. of it. And I would look at someone like myself and I'm getting into a new bike every two, three years. Similar. So there's there's somewhere something in there where let's call it every two years. Yep. So it's that same idea. Of like so for a lower payment amount, and if you're one of these people that's cycling through a bike every two years and wants the latest and greatest, it might not be a bad deal. But you kind of have to be committed to this idea of motorcycling as a service that you're always going to be paying into it, that you're always going to have a monthly payment, a lower monthly payment, but still a monthly payment. And you're never really going to own anything.
1: Well, well if
0: you own, say you buy the Honda
1: at, at $300 a month yeah, for just about the same price as you would have a, a $10,000 more MSRP Ducati, right? you own that for five years At the end of that five years you own it outright at that time. Right. you have.
0: so you have an asset.
1: Right. You have an asset, but it's gonna be worth maybe seventy-five, eight thousand dollars. Even lower. I'm trying to think about my R one. It's
0: a Honda. It's a Honda, but I'm trying to think about my R one. I think my R one, I think I bought it at thirteen grand new. I think it was worth yeah, it was probably worth six by the time I paid it off. Something like that. So we're again, this we're doing
1: gorilla math. So it's basically there. Yeah. Bottom line you're is you're going to take a hit. You're you're you have taken a hit. You've owned the bike for that amount of time. You're going to sell it for six grand, and then you're going to go look for something, maybe newer, later, or greater. Who knows? But that's the that's the reality of it. You have you've spent a lot of money to own that thing, and that's notwithstanding all the maintenance that you might have incurred if you put a bunch of miles on it. So in this case, with a say the balloon payment on the BMW or the Ducati. Um, if, if you're smart and you just ride at a certain amount, then you don't necessarily have to worry about doing all the, the time related. Well, you do the time related maintenance as you need to, but maybe not have yeah. to worry about the, the big service or something. You're going like to
0: that. do tires. You're going to do oil. You probably aren't going to have to do valves though. Right. Do you, are you going to put 15,000 miles on your Ponagali? Maybe not. And maybe more importantly, especially if you're going through bikes every two years, you're probably always going to be in a bike that has a warranty. Which is interesting. Yeah,
1: that's a big deal. And and the the thing is that if you don't necessarily have to go all five years on this balloon payment, right? You could be two years into it and decide I want to get right. into the next one. Right.
0: Right. And now, but at that point, you're gonna be you're gonna be playing the game of what's the bike worth and yep. what do I owe? And at two years into it, I mean, I just do the math in my head. You've probably only paid off a couple thousand dollars, no in, doubt, in principle. So sure. you're probably upside down on that bike.
1: Maybe so. Yeah, that's true. But. but you know that's the, these are all things to be considered that when we started doing the crunching on this back in august it was tough for us to think about and even myself thinking well i would like one of those hyper sps and i think we got the payment down at least this is internally um you know employee cost or something like that to like 130 or 150 and it was like fuck that's really good i get a sweet hyper with that for that maybe i don't i i i'm i'm pulling that out of my butt that i might sounds be right, completely because the
0: hyper on the program is 160 okay
1: well, hyper sp yeah sp Not right bad. 160 Not gets bad. you a rad machine that maybe maybe that would be the uh, the the deal with ducati and bmw is looking at this like we might be getting bikes oh, so, in- i'm sorry
0: 190 190 my bad it's okay. 160 for the base model
1: okay that makes more sense i was about to say with sp and i i that probably is what i'm thinking of relative to what we could get at. but either way i was near 150 and it was close enough to where i was like well that's that's attainable. That's that does not suck. That that for me and my budget I was considering it, but I opted not to cuz I'm like I have enough crap in my life and I don't need another bike. So that, but this is what they might be going for: is the people similar to myself that want to have multiple bikes in the garage and don't because they're they just don't want to have either extra payments or anything like that. Well, they may, might have a dirt bike and a and a track bike, and now they just want a cool street bike. Like, or you know, I've never owned a, a motard or I've never owned an adventure tour. Or I'm going to go do this and maybe it just fills garages.
0: Yeah. All right. For me, the proof is in the pudding because BMW's already been here and been doing it, and, and they've been murdering. And they've been murdering it. Um so so that for me it's like that that shows me what the potential is. And and obviously BMW's been doing this for a long time. And so they've they've had that opportunity to kind of educate the market. They've been able to kind of indoctrinate some of the BMW riders into it makes you it. wonder if
1: the car world, like I, I don't know if this came from the car world or if well, there's like an a analog lease. in the car world. It's like a lease in a car in the car world. In the car world, the leases are just really, really, really popular.
0: Leases leasing is popular, um, but also, you know, like there's different restrictions. Like they'll have a mileage restriction. There's going to be like insurance restrictions. There's going to be all sorts of like packages, service packages you have to buy on top of. Yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so it's a little different that way, but you know, again, look at like the UK and Europe where this has been going on for a little while longer and they're having a lot of success. I I, I want to say someone told me it was like 90% of all purchases are, are this kind of loan or what they're calling a, um, personal contract purchase. So it's interesting to see Ducati bringing that to the U.S. market. I think it's going to do good things for them. I do think they have a mountain to climb in terms of educating buyers because it's going to be it's going to be tough, especially with the economic situation in the U.S., where we're all still kind of reeling, and the and the data in the industry shows this. We're all still kind of like on edge about buying bikes. We're all kind of on edge about spending our money and buying things on credit and. Maybe some of our credit scores aren't as good as they used to be, or, you know, maybe we're already tapped out, you know, savings are gone because we went through this, this horrible recession for a few years. And that's going to be tough. Um. So I think I think it's going to be a slow build, but it'll be interesting because this sets Ducati up for a certified pre-owned program pretty effectively because they're really funneling your choices into coming back to the dealership and trading in for a new bike. And, that's and those we bikes got to go somewhere. Yeah, right. And we were ramping
1: that up. And as the dude that was responsible for the used side, I was, of course, looking at this, frankly, looking at my lips. I'm like, this is going to be really good. I mean, it's going to take a while for it to pay off, but that would be really good because then eventually the used market will will be able to absorb all that and it'll be a lot of good product to sell instead of, hopefully, instead of a a bunch of trashed out crap. But, you know, a lot of these people might just get in on it and they they have the cheap payment and then they just ride the crap out of their bikes and crash them and, you know, not take care of them as well. And then they're going to be in a
0: really bad way at the end of it. And those are the people I worry about. That's where I say, like, you know, if the salespeople are doing their job morally, ethically, they should be upfront with with their buyers because it's like, in five years, you're gonna have a surprise if you don't. If you don't listen to what I'm telling you right now, five years from now, you're gonna have a surprise, and you're gonna be like taking another loan out to pay off a bike that you already paid a loan on. It, it'd be a mess. Yep, caveat emptor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on, uh, Quentin. We got a listener question from okay. our friends, the Mayors. The Mayors. Zemeas. The the um, These are our. our what's they are German friends. They're not actually German, but. Um, Play that message if the computer will cooperate with me.
2: Hey guys, I was wondering if you could discuss motorcycle racing sponsorship from club-level riders all the way through MotoGP professionals. My interest in this arose when I noticed that Andrea Divisioso now wears Alpine Stars leathers, whereas a couple of years ago he was wearing Dainese leathers. Uh, also, it seems like Danny Pedrosa has broken his collarbone several times over his career, and he wears Alpine Stars leathers. Yet, as Jensen has mentioned, it seems the data show that the D air system in the Dainese leathers is superior to the tech air um, of the Alpine Stars leathers. I understand that what the riders wear comes down to their contracts and who's paying them. But if the D Air system is going to be more protective, wouldn't most riders be trying to wear Dainese leathers or at least leathers that utilize the same system, such as Revit and Furigen?
0: Oh man, there's a lot going on there. There's a few things. Yeah. There's a few things going on. So so contracts with riders is is a convoluted issue. And understand that like a leather contract for a GP level rider is going to be about a quarter million dollars, depending on the rider, depending on the company. That's where you can start ballparking it out, though. Um, Somebody like Rossi, it's probably in the millions. Well, I think I think truthfully, I think Rossi gets a piece of the pie. Um, I know he was a a minority holder in AGV. No, oh, no idea. Um, but now, after okay. the investment firm from Bahrain came in, fair enough. So
1: then, let's. Talk, let, I mean, outside of something outside weird of that, like that, but that let's see. I an remember Colin
0: Edwards saying it was like 150000 dollars he was getting from whoever it was at the time. Speedy, sure, whoever.
1: And I would imagine it kind of just goes up and down from your level Absolutely. and where, where where you're at, or in the like Pedrosa. Or it might be a little higher. Well, Danny's
0: so much tinier that he's such an... It, it's cheaper for them. So he he's half a,
1: a cow, Leathers, not
0: two right. cow. Yeah. You're,
1: you're a three cow, I'm a two whoa, cow. Whoa, hey, hey, I've been hitting the gym, whoa. all right? Whoa.
0: <laughs> it's like 2.9, all right? <laughs> e- little Pedrosa, he's e- probably there. .25 of a cow. E- he's like a womp rat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he has a rodent of unusual size <laughs> suit. <laughs> WRSs, <laughs> Yeah. Roos, though he's a Roos suit. Roos suit. All right. So, let's start then with the the bottom, which is local club racing sponsorship level. Like if he's curious yeah. about what it takes. Yeah. You go out, you start riding. Say your buddies with a local shop and they give you uh cost plus 10%.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you're if you're a club racer, I don't care at what level you are, you're paying for it. Right. Yeah, you might so, be getting a break, but right? you're paying for it
1: the the kid or any beginner racer, whether it's kid or not, um, might be getting from from a local shop sponsorship like that, where you put their their shop logo on the side, and they might provide you with cheap labor uh, when you have to have the the, the machine worked on. Probably not, uh, or parts costs, right? And from that point, then you start finding friends or people within the industry. As you race that want to help or that can get you higher up, depending on your results, I wouldn't go and find and and this is a, a legit example. So if somebody like a company that that made inferior product came to me and said, hey, I'm going to give you all kinds of free helmets. And I don't know what's next with that, but that might be a type of thing where I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I will pay $500 for a helmet because I know, or at the time, a rye would be like five, 600 bucks. I'm going to pay for that. Definitely not going to take shorts on that. But if I know the oil is good, I'm going to totally use that oil. I knew people that would be sponsored by some horrible oil company, but would totally run um, the Castrol 727 in their bike, and that was how it worked, right? Well, there's, that's that's the other part of
0: it too, for right? sure. And you, we see you, that we see that in all levels of race,
1: absolutely. You got to know that the product's good, so you're not really that much of a whore. But if you want to take a bunch of product and sell it off, and and but still use. That's what. That's sometimes what would happen, or you just have the stuff that you put in your street bike and whatever, right? So that was a very weird scenario to have a two-stroke engine with oil that you're running in the fuel. Yeah, I can't. That's very weird. Most of the time, if you're sponsored by an oil company, it'll be just fine. You just have to change the oil more often if it's shitty oil. Nah, whatever, right. right? So in that case, that's how you do that, and it worked for me to kind of mitigate the cost of racing. Did it pay for the racing? Absolutely not, not even by a long shot. But it got to the point where, so I was the top finisher on a, uh, uh, on a, a vintage machine one year. Uh, pre-95 Hondas were special because they were older and shittier. So I was the top finisher one year. And the next year I was the top I can't I can't remember how this worked. I was I was either top five or something special. The further I got up in it, the the more I got it opened up doors for other people to help sponsor me. I ended up getting involved with a guy named Rex Marcy who at the time was making jackets and clothing. Um, and also tank bags. And he was selling out a Pro Italian. I worked at Pro Italia. So I got befriended by him. He was really cool and he liked me and he liked what I was doing. And he paid for a certain amount of my racing. And I had Marcy gear and I had the, the, he made me a set of leathers and he got me hooked up with KBC helmets, which, you know, maybe they weren't that good, but they certainly talked the talk and walked the walk at the time. So I got a bunch of free KBC helmets and I was okay with that. I felt safe with that.
0: Um, you might have preferred another brand, but it was good enough. Yeah, that, hey, they were I'll good enough. And
1: I, and I felt that this was okay. So and That's what I was kind of getting and to. And that's a good example of it. And they're like, okay, yeah, I, I guess whore, I think, is an awful term. But that would be, um, you're beholden to them in a way, sure. But that's what you have to do if you want to get the free gear. And if you crash a helmet, then boom, you have another one coming. That's really nice to have because they're expensive. So if, if you're on a Rye-sponsored rider, of course, that's an amazing thing to have. But think about that. Nowadays, a, a good helmet is 750 bucks
0: More track on what's around a thousand bucks now.
1: Sure. Uh, I guess in the industry, I'm so used to being in the industry and this is usually what happens is you end up getting to work at a motorcycle shop by virtue of being the person so desperate to be in the industry to get the brakes that you end up working (laughs) to get the the buddy rate. Yeah. Where I ended up, I was at a motorcycle shop and it's what helped me get into racing. So I started racing YSR fifties right before I got the job at pro Italia, but then while I was there, it helped me continue on. Um, and that was as I was a 19 year old, you know, young kid. So for most club racers, that's the game. And then that might springboard you into the national level. But nowadays, it's so different than it was even mid-90s and the mid-2000s. There was often times where people would go up, right? I know
0: know talking to a few brands at, at the Moto America level right now, unless you are a top five rider, you are probably just getting product from the brands that are on your letters. Sure. You're just like if not that. not even getting paid. Yeah, a lot of them I would say you're probably getting a certain amount of product for free and then a discount on the product. Like that's the, it's a spectrum, obviously. Sure. But, you know, I would say if you're, you're not a top five rider to the leathers you're wearing, you probably got one set for free. Maybe you get another set for free and that's and kind that's of it. it. That's it. And if you want a t-shirt, you're going to get like an employee discount. And you, the only way you get another set for
1: free is if you just won the last race, at, right right after you high sided and ripped up your suit really bad right. in practice or something.
0: No, this is the way it goes. It's the it game. Is, it's it part is part of the it's game. Totally sure. game. So so that's interesting, just to see that that's where that level is, and then like even you get to World Superbike, there's there's a spectrum on that grid on who's getting contracts and who's getting paid, and um, you know, and Divisioso was mentioned, and no, it wasn't out in Easy. He's
1: he we went and just I just did a Google, Google search it. of Davizioso 2010 2011 2012 it and it's he's bounced back from spike to speedy to alpine stars to now back to alpine stars after speedy again so he's bounced around depending on probably who shows him the
0: money I would I would get, I would wager so but so there's a few stories I got a few anecdotes on this idea right the first one I'll talk about is Cal Crutchlow Cal Crutchlow was a speedy rider for a number of years a speedy rider not a speedy rider. It was pretty speedy. This it's is speedy. This, this is Honey Badger Honey Badger years. Speedy, but not in he Speedies. Was, he was quick on the tachtois. He was quick on the tachtois, and that was that that time frame. And he went through a season where he had a ton of issues with his leathers and his gloves, and they were blowing out. And I remember there was one I want to say it was Silverstone, where the arm and the glove exploded, and he got a ton of gravel rash. And it was a huge thing. It was it was extremely painful. It held him back for a race. And I think that was the point in time where he said, middle fingers in the air. I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go shopping for a contract. And he probably was riding with Speedy because they offered him the most money. Yep. And I'm sure he took a paycheck reduction to be with Alpine Stars but was like, hey, it's worth it to me to be in this brand instead of that brand because I don't see these guys' stuff blowing up when they crash, and they're not missing a race or, or extra injured during a race because of that.
1: And the same goes for Lorenzo and the
0: helmet, right? Well, I think that's a different thing, to be honest. Um, that's the HJC. We remember so that see, one year. See and how All the issues with the HJC, I think that is HJC not having the trackside support that Arai or AGV or Shoei has at the track. I don't think that's a product issue. I think that's whoever his handler was, wasn't doing his job. I think that there wasn't, you look at, if you go to the GP paddock, there is, yeah there is an army of AGV, Arai and Shoei people to take care sure. of their people. I have never seen an HJC person, not to say they don't exist, But they don't have the big pop-up hospitality thing going on and like a seamstress in the back who can make a helmet out of, you know, just like little cotton balls and paper clips. And paper clips, you know, (laughs) MacGyver style when they need to. It's a different level of support. And I think I think that caught them out. And I think it was a very public snafu that everyone got to see because they didn't invest into the support side of their product. Um, but I think. Uh, Kyle brought up a really good point about Danny Pedrosa. That's my second antidote. I believe Danny Pedrosa would be a MotoGP world champion if he was not an Alpine Stars contracted rider. Mm. And I, That's and a bold statement. It's a bold statement, but you just look at, and, and Kyle brought this up too, you look at the crash data between the Alpine Stars airbag system and the Dainese airbag system, and there's a stark contrast on the number of injuries and especially the number of collarbones that have been broken. And, and you don't think that's just Danny Pedrosa's teeny little lilliputian? Nothing to do with Danny's bones, size. Those teeny little bones. If that, anything, that if that anything, snap. I think Danny's size is an advantage in yeah. being able to survive a crash sure. because it's less weight yeah. and less mass. The, that's the bigger, to, are, bigger you are, the harder you fall. Style. It's, that's exactly true, and I think you have you're you're literally putting less mass, which means less force when you come to that stopping point. Um, and it's not like. His collarbone is really that much thicker or stronger than my collarbone, even though I tower over him uh, by about I, 14 I inches. Know. The, the, the physics of it, it's, I, I but, get it. But understand that, the especially in the earlier years, the Alpine Stars airbag system was significantly smaller in volume in terms of the airbag. It had a different algorithm. And here's some anecdotal evidence all last season, Lorenzo didn't have an airbag in his airbag suit, it just had the little light. Because he was having so many issues with false positive uh, uh, inflations, and he didn't like the way that it fit. He just took it out. He's like, I'm done with this. You guys can pay me, and I'll have the light light up, but I don't want to have the airbag suit in my airbag. Well, now these things are becoming compulsory. Uh, 2018, all GP riders will have to have an airbag suit. I believe for the 2017 season, Lorenzo's contract stipulates that he has to run the airbag because... This information got out and everyone's like, so you don't use the super special system because you don't like it? Well, that doesn't look good. So that's where I start saying, like, well, you know, I think Alpine Stars is a step behind in Dionysing, and maybe they're catching up. Uh I just got an Alpine Stars airbag suit. They haven't sent me the airbag part of it yet. It just had the leather suit. They figured they already you you're the airbag, right? I'm already I'm (laughs) self-inflating. Um, it's we, hot airbag it's, as opposed to a cold airbag. It's hard enough in that ego in the helmet, let alone <laughs> in the suit, let me tell you. Um, but, you know, so so there is interesting things going on in the space. And I, I don't want to sit here and be like, you know, this is how it's always going to be. But I do think Alpine Stars has been playing catch up for the last few years. And you look at the number of collarbones that Danny has broken and the seasons that it has cost him, especially the last... Last season, he didn't do well at all. But in the 2015, 2014, 2013 seasons, oh, oh man, the poor guy. he was a contender. Yeah. And, you know, I'd have to go back and look at what the point tallies looked like and how many races he missed. But there was, I definitely remember him being in the points hunt. And that would have changed a lot of things in how other people were racing. And I'm not saying, like, absolutely for sure if he was in Dainese or another brand. Well, I guess it would have to be Dainese. There was no one with an airbag at the time. Um, he, would, he would be the champion. But it he I think he would have had the, a significantly the chances better chance. would have been better. Yeah, sure. now now for someone like Danny, like you know I don't I don't know what the pitch is. maybe maybe the paycheck is the reason. Maybe he believes in alpine stars. Maybe he doesn't see a difference in the technology. Maybe he doesn't care. I think he does, but you know, there's yeah. a lot of factors there and and understand that all these motorcycle racers are going to make every dollar they're ever going to make by the time they're 35 if they're lucky. You know, some of them will go on and maybe do a commentating gig. Some of them will get to go do special little yeah, things. Some of them might stretch it out to 40 brand ambassadors maybe, or whatever. Right. But the truth be told, the millions of dollars that they're going to have to live off of as an investment, they're making it right now. So that idea of like, yeah, I want to get that quarter million dollar contract from Alpine Stars, but Dainese is only offering me product. Well, a quarter million over a year is a million or a quarter million over a few seasons adds up. So that could be the difference of. You know, me having a house in Monaco and a house in, you know, Montreal. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, and, and unless you're the 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 rider there and know their personal financial situation, it's you know, it's hard to sit here on, on the couch and, and and judge them for it. But well, it's definitely something they have to weigh, and and it's the same thing with Lorenzo. Like I'm sure he took that HJC contract. Because it was a significant amount of money more than Arai or Shoei or whoever was willing to pay him. It certainly cost him points. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, so the potential's there. And, you know, does that happen very often? I don't know, but it's there. The rest of the stuff on the bike, though, there's all kinds of
1: crap and... I don't know. I don't know if many people pay attention to it any longer. The one biggest disappointment for me, and believe me, I'm not a smoking advocate at all. My dad smoked Winston's from the time he was 15 till he was like, I don't know, late 60s. Um, And knock wood, he's still alive. But that's a bad deal. I was around it a lot. I hate smoking. I I think it's pretty bad. Um, I would never do it. I've never done it. But... It brought money into the industry, and I have no problem with advertising. I know a lot of people find that like like the there's a reason why it's gone is because of the amount that affects kids and like the advertising itself. But um, I I have no issue with it. So I, I think it's a bit of a bummer that there's not these awesome liveries from again we were just talking about this earlier in the show. A lot of the liveries that I poked at um, uh, Lucky Strike, Galois, Chesterfield. They just look cool because they were smoking advertisements, but they definitely look cool and I like it. And it helped build the industry. Like that was a really good thing, at least in the GP level. Right? Yeah. So,
0: so think about this, right? So you bring, you bring up smoking the, the modern day equivalent now is energy drinks. Um, yeah, that's just kidney stones though, right? That's not cancer. <laughs> I well, don't know. It's all argument, well, isn't it? You know, Yeah. <laughs> but you, I mean the, the truth be told it, it is, you know, here's the business side of it. It is products that have a high margin. Cigarettes are very easy to make. They're very cheap to make. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. We sell them at an inflated price. Now, some of that is tax, but make yeah. no mistake, the tobacco industry is laughing all the way to the yeah, bank. Sure. You know, we joke about it with, with energy drinks. It's sugar water. It literally is sugar water. <laughs> it really, it costs pennies, pennies on the dollar to make. A, a, a can of Red Bull sells for what, four or five dollars? Depends on the can size. I mean, significant. They're, they're expensive. Yeah. They're, they're more expensive than soda. Um, as a big soda drinker, I'm, I'm very aware of the price of soda. Um, but it literally costs them probably like a a cent to two cents to fill that product. So when you go and you sell a can for like $10 and it makes, and it costs you 10 cents to make it, you, you, all these business models, what I'm trying to get at is all these business models are centered around marketing and you have to be a marketing savvy firm to, to do it right. And it's the same with like Oakley's, right? What are Oakleys? They're plastic. They're plastic sunglasses. They're thermonuclear protection, right? (laughs) You know, but it's just plastic (laughs) with plastic lenses with like a UV coating. And I know, but it's all special. It's plutonite or something, right? (laughs) But it's bullshit. It is plastic. It (laughs) is. It might be. You know, it's it's like like you can get out the scientific name for a polycarbonate. You yeah, know, plastic know. thing, and it's like, yeah, that's just fucking uh, I ate
1: it up when I was a kid though. All me and all my friends there in but central much, Texas. But how ate, much does ate that ate shit up? cost? Yeah. And they're a hunt to two hundred dollars per set. And they're set.
0: making them for like a dollar or less yeah. in China. Sure. So, you know, and but so you start seeing the brands that are involved with this, and they're all high margin brands, and high margin brands have to their business model is based on being good at marketing. So It shouldn't surprise you that the liveries are good because that's what those brands are supposed to be good at. Those brands are all about differentiating themselves through market communications. There's not a big difference in tobacco. I mean, you can sit there and be a connoisseur and say, hey, these taste different than those, and I enjoy these different, just the same as like I like Mountain Dew, but is Mountain Dew really different from Coke or Pepsi or Sprite? Yeah. You know, like if you want to get into it, like I noticed a difference. As, as I can a tell sugar, you.
1: sugar delivery but system, knows. It's just, no, it's just yeah.
0: sugar water that's carbonated and it's a different color. And it's the same thing with sunglasses. Is there really a big difference between Ray-Bans and Oakley's? Just the style, just the marketing. I don't know. My buddy Norm. Norm, you're going to have to comment on Norm's this. Gonna, Norm's going to come swinging after me. Yeah, I know. But I'd
1: be um, curious. I'd be curious to see what he says because he was there in the 80s when Oakley was. Early days. Right?
0: All marketing. <laughs> it's all It's all perception and you know and perception is king so you know i don't fault them at all for it but just understand like you know it is interesting like like red bull red bull is so focused on how uh the bikes that it sponsors and the riders it sponsors look there is a definite um design language that red bull has perfected the last few years if you start looking at Maverick Vinyales is how years you are talking about last 20 years well, since, since the beginning well but it's it's really come to a head in the last couple of years where like they always had like the bull and it was red and yellow and there was like a blue background and it had it had a lot of common themes but now you start looking at their riders and their helmets and the liveries I mean look at the Red Bull livery on the Honda the Red Bull Honda World Superbike team where the rider looks like it's fucking the bull well that looks really awkward. I don't think. That's true. I wish I
1: can't wait to see the pictures. I haven't gotten a chance to. It is it's you not You need to get a blow up picture of that. It's
0: it's I'm making the notes. It's not gr- show yeah, notes. Time. Show notes. Where were you on that? Um it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be because the rider leg covers the bull enough that it doesn't look like, <laughs> like he's it's surrounding the bull. Like like Nikki's just grabbing life by the horns. <laughs> <laughs> But it is a little awkward. Like I wish someone had kind of thought that through. But look at that livery. Look at yeah. look at what's on Nikki's bike, yeah. and compare that to what's on the KTM bike in MotoGP. Yeah, and they look very very similar. And, and on the Formula One, so there's the Red Bull Racing right. team that is literally Red Bull Racing, not
1: right. not Renault, not Ferrari. It's Red Bull Racing, and that's a, a gnarly thing in Formula One. And then there's a Toro Rosso, which is Red Bull and Italian. They're all their liveries they have to be different. But it's interesting that they're all uh, – I'm going to have to look at it. And they're going to have looking,
0: theme. Start looking at the riders that are sponsored by Red Bull, and look how similar their helmets look with the uh, the design, like Jake Gagne. Right? He's a Red Bull-sponsored rider here in Moto America. Look at his helmet and compare it to Maverick Vinales, who's a Moto GB rider. Two riders in completely different worlds of, yeah, sure. of racing, and they're starting to have this very common look to them. And, and, you, you, and see, you can spot that, them out a mile away. And you don't think that's the same thing with a monster? The monster's monster like the, the has green a, the monsters, green monster
1: logo is every freaking way. They
0: are, but I don't think they've they've taken it to the next level that Red Bull has. And I think that's interesting. Um and they that, haven't had to. They give
1: it away. So here's here's something, uh some inside info from people that are have you get been some in, gossip. Yeah, the inside gossip. But it just was, was me talking with somebody that had been in Monster uh in Deep and, and discussing the ins and outs of the way All of these companies present themselves and there was a huge separation between Red Bull who would never let anybody get a hold of Red Bull gear except for the racers or sponsored riders, period, right? You would very rarely be able to go buy a Red Bull jacket or beanie or hat or whatever. They wanted to keep that as much as possible in control of the racers and it was a huge edict to them, like, do not give this stuff away. This is for you only. Monster whatever. Everybody gets everything. Here it is. Do you have a monster toilet seat cover? No, here's one, right? I mean, it's that bad. Like, everybody had access to it. Put it on everything. You see some sponsored monster riders and drivers everywhere on the streets of Portland, Oregon. I'll tell you that right now. They must be paid <laughs> a ton, right? That Monster M is covering everything all over the place, and it. I think it devalues it, but it does make it cheap, whereas the Red Bull has still... And what Red Bull has chosen to do, instead of just blanket cover every fucking form of racing, including put Monster on a, on a horse that's racing, they choose these weird, amazing, interesting, dynamic things like the dude dropping from 80,000 feet or um, the Red Bull straight rhythm or very interesting focused events,
0: which well, I think that, is cool. They can do that because the margin on their product is so high. They can afford to be their own marketing company. And, that, and that's that's yeah. Red Bull's business model is. Sure. They want to be in high profile, highly active, highly lurid events and they went out and initially they sponsored everything they could that fit that profile. And then they realized like, hey, we've run out of stuff. We've got to keep growing. We're going to start making our own events. We'll do Flute Talk. We'll do, you know, that's where people run off a ramp into the water with man-made airplane bullshit. Looks like fun. Yeah. Um we'll do, you know They're not too they don't take themselves too
1: seriously either. No, that's no, the no, thing. No, no, like no, no, that no. that is a fun event. I want to go do that one sometime. No, no, that's a really yeah. neat thing. I
0: get it. But, but then also something like Red Bull Straight Rhythm, which brings straight in straight rhythm. Yep. They start doing their own media events and it's because they can get away with it because one, the exposure is so high because they're doing in this crazy stuff that people have to watch i have to see this guy jump out of a space capsule and you know skydive into the back to the earth
1: right so they do the more extreme stuff and it makes you want to just well i don't know it doesn't make me want to red bull not necessarily but we're talking
0: about it it doesn't matter and 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 that's where i would say like i think red bull does it right but i also think monster does it right because that idea of like why do we see all these sponsored drivers around Portland, as you say? Because they're emulating their their Kent blocks, they're emulating their their you know Valentina s- Rossi. Valentina Rossi's sure. of the world or their Supercross rider or their monster truck driver, whatever there's just in like that's cool. It's the same thing like when I roll up to a track day and I see guys that got like, oh, I got my Dunlop sticker on here, and I got my my Mole Tool sticker yeah. and I got my Olin sticker, and I'm like, you ain't getting paid shit. But I, you wanna look the part. You wanna look like your favorite racer here you want your track bike to look like a race bike and you're into it but no one's paying you for it you're just giving it away for free because you get a stroke out i've got to be careful here i just talked massive amounts i didn't even talk shit
1: i walk into the service department at motocorsa and there's ryan oh
0: i was totally picturing ryan ryan you're listening right now you're a poser you're such a poser (laughs) we love you
2: oh Oh but you got
0: god. your little Pirelli sticker, oh and you got your little K Tech sticker. You sponsored by
1: Woodcraft now. I noticed. I was like, right Woodcraft picked on. it up. Oh my god! But I, you know, you you make fun of it, but I was there at some point in time too. And I, and not there. I mean, we're all there. I have stickers on my race bike that I might not be sponsored by any longer. Whatever. On the street side, yeah, I think it's
0: Skippy Ryan. It's, but
1: a little... <laughs> it's Oh, man, we're I gonna get it, right? We're gonna I mean, get, this is
0: actually someone that can come to our, my house and beat us up. I know so we got to watch out, right?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! But so, but that's that's a good example. You're right. It doesn't matter because now, uh, who knows, that person, he he goes to a track day. Seriously, somebody might buy Woodcraft rear sets just by virtue of that fast rad dude on the Panigale with the sweet, sweet, sweet gold wheels
0: has that on his bike. Or they see the rear sets on the bike and say, hey, those look good. Oh, Woodcraft. Okay. Yep. There's a little of that. And that's that's fair. And that's totally fair. And I had a thought and I totally lost it. Where was I going?
1: Well, are you sponsored by anybody? Do you have any stuff on any of your... Not really.
0: No. But I'm I go like the other way with it almost. Where I'm like I'm so averse to to bring being the brand person. Like if I bought a pair of Oakleys, I'd probably just rub these scratch,
1: scratch it off. Yeah, sure. I was that way with the Cristini in the beginning. I took off all the stickers, but then I'd get weird questions all the time. And now I just emblaze it with all the Cristini
0: logos on the on the bike, and, and people then know. Okay, that's Cristini. All right. That and that that that. Thank you because that that primed me for what I was trying to say. I don't have too much of an issue with it on on a high level. Like like my my level of caring should always be measured on a spectrum, you know, like like yep. like little caring to a lot of caring. I will always argue the the issue, even when it's that little caring. So if I sit yeah, here yeah. and act like I really care about this, I really don't. I'm telling you, like my level of caring yeah, is sure. like two percent. Yeah. But I do like the fact that like look at the brand engagement that shows because that's what that is, and it's the same thing with the Skippies driving around with the Monster logos on the cars. It shows the level of Residence that that brand has with that person. If our buddy Ryan wants to go put Pirelli stickers on his bike and Woodcraft stickers and Oz Wheels and K Tech, and I'm trying to think of all the other little goodies, he's got a pretty sweet little bike.
1: Uh, I'll make sure in the show notes to get all of uh, Ryan's sponsorship and make sure right. to give him a plug. But,
0: but you know, if 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 he feels enough of a connection, or if anyone feels enough of a connection to a brand to want to put that on their bike, then that means that brand is doing something right. You know, and yeah. that and that's the same reason that they sponsor a rider. It's it's the same thing that they're tapping into, except so one's getting paid and the other's buying the product. It worked for me for a ride. In the beginning I saw all my favorite
1: racers with a Rye helmets period. A couple had Shoei and I owned a Shoei when I was younger, but I knew the best racers had our eye. And then being in the AMA paddock, all the best, ra- all the people who were getting paid the most or had the best rides. Well, that's eye, why they do it. Right. But then I, I, think- I ended up on KBC at the same time, Matt Mladen of all people came, ended up on KBC. It was the same year. It was 2003. So there's Matt Mladen who was just dominant. And he was re- re- wearing these helmets. That was one of the reasons where I was like, oh, well, that's the, what he wears. Sure, I'll do that. Because he had done it, so it must be safe and good. And it wasn't an Arai painted like another helmet, which I'd seen before. We'd seen it with boots. I'd seen it with leathers. And I'd seen it with uh, with helmets where people would disguise a helmet that they really wanted to wear. Same as we were talking about earlier in the show, oil. Yeah, I might put Silk and lean on the side, but I'm totally using castrol because I like this whatever, right. right? So that's that's an extreme of it. But for sure... That's a big deal. And I the fact that is now, if I'm going to go buy an, a, a helmet, my personal money, I will tend to go
0: towards a rye, right? Well, that's an that's interesting thing that um, I was actually having a text message conversation with my colleague, Adam Waheed, about and in terms of influence and, and just the fact that us as journalists, what we wear at a press launch has a lot of... Influence, and that's why you see certain brands that are switched on. Yeah. being like, oh, oh, Jensen, you're going to go ride the new whammy blammy bike. Let's make sure we get you in our stuff. What can? What do you need? Do you need gloves? Do you Need a helmet? What do you need? Boots? Let's yeah. let's get you. Let's get you. It a lot up. to them because they understand that when people see journalists or racers or whoever in these magazines or online wearing that gear, it influences them. I have had people come up and tell me I bought an AGV helmet because I saw that you wear a lot of AG helmets, AGV helmets at your press launches and in your Instagram photos and things like that. I noticed that you got a Dainese suit and you said good things about it. So I bought one of those too. And it's the same thing with racers. Like, Hey, I noticed that all the TT guys wear a rise or all the people in the Moto America paddock wear a rise. Does that mean Arise the best helmet on the market? Nope, but they got their product in the right place. Same as Dynese did, same as, you know, any of these other brands that are switched into it where it's like you realize that these people are going to be influencers, that people are going to emulate them but also trust this idea of like, well, he's wearing this, so it must be good and getting in on that on that action. I see people get like locked into kind of like the helmet brands that they like. And and I do think there are some bad brands out there and I do think there are some good brands out there. And I think there are brands that are in between, but when it comes down to safety, I would say 95% of the time they're probably all the same. I think sure. the rest is marketing. And I think and that's why I say like when you, when I look at the data, I see a weak correlation between price and crash test results. I see a high correlation between price and features and comfort and fit and finish and graphics.
1: Right. I want optical clarity. I want super amount of comfort. I want hypoallergenic materials. I want it to look really good. It's going to be in a rye, but if I want all of that and I know fancy carbon, then I'll go to this bell that's new. Or if I want all that and I want it to be really quiet uh, the AGV or super light, that AGV, right? So it's d- yeah. horses for courses depending on what you like. Sometimes, you know what? I just want to look like Marco Simoncelli. And that's literally why I bought an AGV helmet. No, I wanted the Marco Simoncelli helmet. I have it, right? Uh, that's
0: fair play. Just just wrap it up, I would say any company, any helmet company that has an in-house crash test rig is probably a helmet I would buy a helmet from. Fair
1: enough. You should, you should have that listed. In fact, I'm going to make show notes. Listed helmet manufacturers that have in-house Off the money.
0: top of my head, uh, AGV, Bell, Arai, Shoei, Schuberth. I might be missing a couple there, but those would be those would be my go-tos. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. Very cool. So from a marketing standpoint, and I guess we've got on a huge tangent
0: from uh, <laughs> going from Sponsorship, but it, it all plays it's together. All, it's right? all the same because because the sponsorship is there to be part of that marketing. Let's understand that racing is a marketing pursuit. No, oh, yeah. So so
1: entertainment.
0: It's entertainment because of the because marketing. it's marketing. Yeah. Uh, it's not like it's not like basketball is is basketball or like I would say ball and stick sports but by and large are sports based on entertainment. You go and you're going to buy the team jersey. You're going to buy the eight dollar beer. You're going to get your tickets, and that's what that's built around. You don't see like. I mean, you'll see like Nike and stuff, kind of in there. Yeah. But it's not like Michael Jordan was walking around with this huge Nike-sponsored thing, and he had like little armbands up and down with all the of swishes, them. The, the everywhere. swooshes everywhere. The swooshes everywhere. It's not like that. Whereas, like obviously, motorcycle racing, they are walking billboards. Their leathers are walking billboards. So it's it's a different business model in that regard, which is which is interesting. Um. But we should wrap it up. We're we're really long in the show. Uh. Thank you, Kyle and Sarah, for sending in that message. If you would like to ask a question on the show, please send an audio file to two enthusiasts at asphalt and uh, We like playing the audio ones. I, I would definitely like getting your emails and your inner questions there, but it's more fun when we can share them with other people and talk about on the show. Because as you can tell, Quentin and I fall into rabbit holes pretty easily and that's a good time around for everyone. So kickstand. Oops, kickstand. Oops. Good talk. See you out there <laughs> later. Oh, I got my Dunlop sticker on here, and I got my my mole tool sticker, yeah. and I got my Olin sticker, and I'm like, you ain't getting paid shit. I walk into the service department at Motocorsa,
1: and there's Ryan. Ah! <laughs>